Welcome everybody to School Psych Podcast. Really excited tonight for a great conversation with a guest who's just very knowledgeable in a lot of different areas and I think it's going to be a good conversation. Uh, my name is Rachel. I'm a school psychologist in Maryland. I'm going to pass it over to Rebecca who's going to tell everybody how to participate live tonight. Rebecca. Hello everybody. I'm Rebecca and I am excited to be looking out for notifications for your questions, comments, thoughts, uh, experiences. And if you are watching us live tonight, you can comment right alongside the YouTube video. Um, we'll be looking there as well. We will be looking on the Facebook pages, School Psych, Your School Psychologist, or the School Psych podcast page, our dedicated podcast Facebook page. And on Twitter, please tweet using the hashtag Psyched Podcast, and I'll be looking out for you. We can't wait to have your participation in this conversation. And even if you're watching or listening on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get podcasts later in time, please continue the conversation because we have so much to learn and gain from these times together where we're engaged in uh, thinking, intentional thinking together on how we can be our best as school psychologists. So we look forward to continuing the conversation over time. And now I'm going to hand it off to Eric. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Eric, and I am a school psychologist also in Connecticut. And I am excited to introduce our guest tonight. He's a school psychologist that I have followed on social media for a little while. And we met last year at NASP, and we were just sort of joking before we started that we were all kind of just admiring, like, oh my gosh, Dr. McClure, you know. And uh, we were excited to, to meet him. And it wasn't long after that, that we shut down for the pandemic and Dr. McClure's um, social and emotional learning material have come in handy for many of us who were doing online uh, teletherapy and telecounseling support for our kids and um, just trying to navigate the myriad of uh, social and emotional needs and uh, issues with equity and diversity and things that the pandemic uh, magnified um, for many of us. So um, we were just excited to have him here to talk about so many things. Uh, I wanna tell you just a little bit about him and um, who he is. Uh, Dr. Byron McClure is a nationally certified school psychologist. He holds a BS in psychology from Hampton, Hampton University and his specialist in school psychology uh, degree from Abilene Christian University and his doctoral degree from Indiana University of Pennsylvania. Uh, the program uh, I am a big fan of, by the way. So, um, so many good school psychologists have come out of that program. Um, his dissertation work was in investigation of Castle's select programs with minority students from high poverty communities. And he has a number of years experience providing school psych uh, services, therapeutic support, and consultative services in the school setting. He is a school psychologist in the DC public schools and uh, just has a wealth of experience and knowledge. And so, uh, Dr. McClure, welcome. We're excited to talk with you and we're happy to have you here. It is official. I am on the School Psych Podcast. Life is great. Life is officially perfect now. I am a happy man. No, thank you all for having me on the platform. Um, I've been a fan for a while now. And like you said, running into you all at just last year when, you know, the world was open was a, certainly a highlight. But, you know, in this moment, um, this means a lot. So thank you all for, for sharing the platform and inviting me on to, to talk about some of the great work I've been able to do so far. You're welcome. Um, I wonder, there are so many 
things I kind of want to pick your brain about because I'm just really impressed by the work you're doing. Um, maybe we could start with the your dissertation, the the exploring uh, castle and the work um, uh, with minority students. You certainly have blossomed uh, into a number of um, social and emotional learning activities and um, a, sort of a curricula a little bit. Um, Maybe tell us a little about how that started and, and your interest in that area and your SEL uh, work. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that's a really good place to start. And this story uh, has a number of different players involved. Um, and it really speaks to the need for social emotional learning. Um, I know going into the field, I've always wanted to work with black youth, with minority students who, who look like me. And so going into you know, my, my doctorate program at IUP, I wanted to have that body of research along with it. And so my original dissertation was actually going to look and investigate at an actual SEL program. Um, shout out to uh, Dr. Um, Dr. Murrow out of University of Oregon. Um, he, he passed away, but that body of work was actually going to be an investigation of the Strong Kids curriculum at the middle and high school level. And so I actually, um, in elementary as well. And so with that, I actually had a school that I was gonna run the study at. Um, I had the admin who was on board, but it, my population, my demographic was uh, high poverty, high needs. And one thing that you will, like people should know is that there's high turnover rate, lack of resources, all of those things. And so by the time we got ready to start the study, the entire admin left, several of the staff members who actually were gonna be the in interventionists left. And I'm sitting there like, what am I going to do? I have this dissertation and no study. And so this is where uh, the players come in involved. Dr. Scott Graves, I randomly sent the email and we started building a connection and he just happened to check in with me. And I was like, Dr. Graves, this is where I am. They pulled out and he just so calm and cool. He was like, just do a meta-analysis. I was like, a meta-analysis, what? It's like, yeah, just do a meta-analysis. And so I, I started doing research. I looked into what a meta-analysis even was and I did it. And so I actually did a meta-analysis um, where I looked at Castle Select programs. I combined a number of different studies. I combed through effect sizes. And long story short, I wanted to see which SEL programs were the most effective for youth of color from high poverty communities. And that meta-analysis, it allowed me to research all at that point in time, all the SEL curriculums um, as evidenced by Castle. Um, and then I was able to see, these are the most effective SEL programs. These are the best practices. And that really was the launching pad to my SEL work. And I, I want to make sure that I tell that story um, because um, with, especially in our space of school psychologists, it's not that many black school psychologists in this space. And I wouldn't be, well, I probably would, but my chances of becoming Dr. McClure greatly increased because of just that small connection uh, with Dr. Graves. But in that research, um, I, I was able to find um, there were a number of programs, really seven programs um, that are deemed Castle Select programs. Um, and those programs were found to be effective for minority students from high poverty communities. And that really uh, laid the groundwork, that laid the foundation of my research. Um, and I'm sure we'll, we'll get more into it in a little bit, but to stick to it, that that really laid the, the foundation for my research. 
that must have been such an intense time with turnover and admin. I mean, I know even in small things in school buildings, uh, small initiatives, let alone a, a big research project, that can be difficult. One main person leaves and trying to reestablish that. So that um, I just feel for your former self as you were going through that, but what a wonderful outcome. I'm wondering, as you were looking into the studies that existed, were you, was it, was anything about the, the research that you were analyzing in your dissertation and your meta-analysis surprising to you? What, was there a lot of information out there for students of, of color from high, high poverty areas? Was there um, less? What did you find as you began the investigation? That's a good question. It's also an important question um, because what I found, um, it both was surprising, but then it really wasn't. And I say that because what was surprising is the lack of research um, for my particular demographic of students from high poverty communities, um, minority students as well. And what I found is there just wasn't a ton of research. In fact, when you comb through those Castle Select programs, and it's also important to note when we're talking about Castle, that's the, the gold standard, that's the body, the collaborator for academic social emotional learning. And they have an entire committee and they just comb through SEL curriculums, SEL programs. Then they give you this designation, right? Saying that you are the best of the best. You are the most effective. You met our rigorous criteria and we are deeming you, we are knighting you a Castle Select program. Why is that important? Because out of that body, out of all of the programs that they come through at that time, there was only a handful that met not only their criteria, but then my criteria for my meta-analysis, which meant that they utilized research and uh, different procedures that utilize mostly minority students, or they utilize research procedures that utilize uh, mostly students from high poverty communities. It just wasn't that much research out there. Why does that matter? That is huge because most of the SEO programs that are out there aren't geared towards minority students and they're not geared towards students from high poverty communities, which means all of these people are spending thousands upon thousands of dollars on SEO curriculums that don't fit for the kids who need them. That's a problem. And my research of what was surprising, it found it and it's glaring and 180 pages is screaming, look, there's this body of research that needs more research. There's an entire body of evidence out here that says black students, Latino students from high poverty communities need these supports. We need them, but there isn't that much resource and curriculums out there to meet our needs. And I think that's one reason why, why that dissertation was so important and why it kind of spares some of the, the later work that I got involved in. But that, that was something that was really surprising for, for my body of research. That's so crucial. I, you know, I, I think back to um, our assessment procedures and, and, you know, the story of Larry P that we've probably all heard and, um, you know, that we weren't uh, standardizing tests on anybody except Caucasian students, you know, initially. And, and yet we were applying them across the board to everybody, you know, with, um, uh, with no, um, in nod to culture, no consideration for culture or um, second language or, or uh, any differences that students might have had. Um, so, uh, you know, it just makes so much sense, you know, that the same with curriculum and uh, social and emotional learning as well. That's huge. Absolutely. And I, I also want to add that 
That's why research is important and being able to understand where the gaps of research, where they lay, so that we can then actually move just for, not just from research, but into applying it into our practice. Um, I think both of those things are, are very important and why, why my dissertation, um, it looked like it wasn't gonna work out, but making that pivot to that meta-analysis was so crucial. Um, because now, especially as SEL is emerging, we can say, hey, these curriculums work, these curriculums don't work, and these curriculums are the most effective at improving very specific outcomes, very specific outcomes that include things such as academic achievement, pro-social behavior, reducing things such as conduct problems, and then emotional distress. One other thing from my study that I found, listen, y'all have me really geeking out on my dissertation. I get excited when I get to talk about, about this work. Um, but one thing that I did find that needs even more research is how do these SEL curriculums reduce emotional distress as an outcome? Um, that's something. So if anybody's listening who needs to, to get further some research, there's a free one for you all. That's fantastic. I, I have one other thought as you're talking. As you were um, exploring the uh, the curricula, did you find an overlap um, in um, spe in specific kinds of curricula for um, diverse populations, like anti-bias or anti-racist curriculum? Is there is there even um, any research on that? And what's the overlap between that kind of um, pedagogy or social emotional learning with just sort of the castle select, the usual, the, the competencies of uh, the castle competencies of social emotional learning and specific um, anti-racism work. So there's a lag on, on my side. Um, so I got some bits and pieces. I heard anti-racist, I heard SEL. And so I'm just gonna answer the question based on what I, I'm piecing together in my head. Um, at the time of my research, there wasn't a this anti-racist movement um, is recently emerging. And so at that time, no one was saying anything about being anti-racist or culturally affirming or any of those things. But that's what I was looking at. I wanted to dig deep into those curriculums to see if they mentioned themes of self-identity, if they talked about you know, uh, bringing out the strengths. I wanted to see if there were a representation inside of these curriculums. Um, and those curriculums that I identified, they did a, a decent job of getting at it. Um, and one really important thing that some of those curriculums also tied in a family engagement piece as well. But again, there wasn't that many of those programs and more research needs to be done. So what does that mean for us now and moving forward? I did my dissertation back 2015, 2016. And so here we are in 2021 and now everyone wants to be an anti-racist where most people are doing a really poor job of being anti-racist. And we're looking at SEL curriculums. Most people are not doing a solid job of integrating these themes and concepts into their SEL curriculums. Shoot, just aside from SEL curriculums, looking at schools, most schools aren't doing a good job of integrating these things. And so one of the things that I've purposed to do, whether it's through my practice as a school psychologist, whether it's through SEL content that I'm developing, is making sure that at the core of my work lies things of social justice, racial justice, equity, liberation, 
right? We talk about uh, uh, Rebecca, um, the Thriving School site. Her platform is thriving. Like, y'all, we have to move into this space to where we are moving from this deficit-based mentality into a culture of thriving. Like, that is culturally affirming SEL at its finest. But we are saying, you have strengths. We can celebrate your identity. We can actually call out these systems of oppression and then move that into this space of just liberation, of excitement, of joy, of being in school. And that's what I'm here uh, and I'm trying to, to purpose for us. So I get excited when I talk. So y'all let me know it's eight o'clock at night. I don't know if people sleep, but I, I just get excited. When I, I, I love it. Uh, and honestly, like this maybe will lead into some of the stuff that I really I was kind of fed by your talk last year at NASP. Um, uh, what you sort of called it, um, uh, how to be a disruptor, I think, right. And disrupting systems, but then also designing systems. And so, um, I just was fascinated by the, the information you shared and maybe I, I would just let you tell a little about that. Um, uh, you know, we, we all, the catchphrases, right. Um, we talk about disrupt the prison school to prison pipeline, um, you know, we, we use these catchphrases in education, but I'm not sure we practically do it, right? Um, or, or, or do it effectively, right? The system is sort of made to do certain things and we may not really effectively know how to disrupt it, at least one person at a time or one school psych at a time. Um, so tell us about um, what you, your talk last year, it was just really fascinating to me and I, I think really insightful. Yeah, thank you, thank you. And and the concept of that talk, are you a disruptor, is moving us from a place of complacency, it's moving us from a place of being part of a system that has continued to perpetuate harm and oppress marginalized groups of people. And so it really was a call of action of sorts, meaning that we are either going to continue on this path of devastation or we are going to completely abruptly stop it, disrupt it. Like, and it can't be this gradual or where we are admiring the problem or we're coming up with excuse after excuse of why we need to maintain and stay in this place. No, disrupt. And I like that word disrupt because it means to completely shift, to completely change a system, to completely change a way that people have historically done things. And that word historically is important because especially in the context of systems, especially when you're looking at education, because education, if we believe it's a system, has been set up to get results and outcomes. Going back to my dissertation, I'm looking at improving outcomes. So if I have that belief that things were set up to get certain outcomes, then we have to look at the outcomes of black youth, right? And what are these outcomes that they're getting? And in the research is oftentimes negative outcomes, truancy, disproportionality, all of those things. I don't want to dwell on it because again, I'm moving towards this thriving practice, but that's the reality of where we are. And so if we believe those things, then we must say that these outcomes are not equitable and they're not just. So let's disrupt them. In order to disrupt them, I always start that you have to have an understanding of the historical context that has led to these very systems that are in place right now, right? 
And what policies led to where we are? You have to look at things such as slavery. Can't deny that. You have to move from slavery up to Jim Crow policies, right? People, people think this stuff happened thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago. Y'all, my grandfather, my dad's dad was a sharecropper in Arkansas. My dad was the first one in his family to go to college. We're not talking about things that happened thousands and thousands of years ago. We are talking about things that we can still look and feel and touch and see the impact of. So me and my space as a school psychologist, I am under the belief that those practices and policies and ideals have simply been shared and passed down generation to generation to generation, which continues to perpetuate the cycles of oppression that we see now before us. And if we are serious about being anti-racist, about integrating culturally affirming practices, we have to have a lens to where we can look back at those things and say, we're not gonna continue perpetuating them. How are they showing up and how can we disrupt them? Why? So that we can then design more equitable practices so that we can create policies and ideas that produce favorable outcomes for certain groups of people. I my, daughter, my daughter is like loving what I'm saying. So she's like down here to show some love. <laughs> oh, <that's> sweet. <laughs> I too love, you know, this, this concept and this is new for me, you know, of, of disrupting and um, being a disruptor because I feel like it gives you that first step. And it used to be that like, saying something or calling something out was like looked at as impolite or rude or you don't you wouldn't want to rock the boat you don't want to make a few people feel uncomfortable and you know giving people you know uh, the message that no like it's your duty to to speak up and to disrupt when when you see something wrong and to make changes and, and to do that so I, I find the whole thing kind of refreshing and a little bit it's difficult um, and I'm learning, um, but I, I feel like it, it's a good first step that, you know, disrupt, say something, speak, have a conversation. Um, yeah, know. and I'm, I'm happy that you brought that up because when people think disruptor, they think it has to be on this grand scale of I'm protesting in city hall and I'm chaining myself to, to you know, the school board and I'm not leaving until we get our demands met. Yes, you can do that. I'm, I don't want to get anyone in trouble. However, it also means doing exactly what you say. I don't even know if you caught that, but asking why, right? Being in a meeting, we're school psychologists. We attend SST, MTSS, PBIS, IEP, all these different meetings where all these policies are having direct impacts on kids. And in those meetings where we see policies and practices are continuing to perpetuate cycles of harm, at what point do we just ask why? Why are we doing this? How is this helping our children? How are these policies and practices continuing to perpetuate cycles of harm that are disproportionately impacting certain groups of people? And it can simply come from a question of asking why. The other piece that I, I always talk about when I, I'm giving my presentation on being a disruptor, disrupt where you are and what you are comfortable with. It doesn't, look, my whole space is SEL, school to prison pipeline, things of that sort. I know not to hop in the lane of that SLD conversation. That's not my lane, right? I can talk about it. I can address it. But my lane is making sure that these black boys get the services that they need so that they can live a life where they are thriving. And I'm going to disrupt in that lane all day long. So what that goes to is identifying your strengths, what you're good at, 
what you're strong, what you are bringing to the field and the table as a school psychologist, understanding your unique skill set, and then using that skill set to be a disruptor and bring about change. I love it. A conversation that's happening in my area among a, a consortium of schools, um, they've started calling it diesel. And it's school psychologists, school counselors, uh, DEI practitioners, and, um, and other educators interested in SEL. And so the diesel stands for diversity, inclusion, equity, social, emotional learning. And it is like the beginnings of thinking about how do we do social, emotional learning I mean, I might say even that is a little bit disruptive of the systems, the things that we have been doing that haven't made um, a big impact on on our uh, on our our DEI goals. And so, I love what you're saying. I find it so inspirational, and I feel as though there's a long way to go. But if we did each harness our our little corners of the world and and ask why in our areas, I I feel as though we can we can take those steps and go really far. What would you say? Um, would be an example for school psychologists of a small step they can take if they're interested in um, entering the the SEL um, space? Yeah, I think there's a number of different steps that educators, psychologists can take to enter into the SEL space. Um, I think that traditionally our field, at least when I came in, um, we were focused on PBIS. Um, positive behavior interventions and supports. Um, and I think that there was, for me, there was a natural overlap um, between that PBIS I was doing at, at my elementary and the middle schools um, and naturally integrating um, things such as SEL. Um, and one of the, the examples that I give with that, um, and a lot of people don't necessarily consider this piece, but for me, it was looking at the data. Um, and one thing that was important for me is where are trends showing up in that data, um, whether it's for PBIS or SEL? And that's a, a area where people aren't even really having the conversation with SEL and data, but that's a whole nother thing. Um, but uh, to answer your question, I saw that there were trends that were showing up with our discipline data, uh, with our referrals to special education, with our suspensions and expulsions. And so as we were looking at how can we strengthen this system, this PBIS system, we had a major hole where there were certain groups of kids who were being disproportionately disciplined. And by analyzing that data, the office discipline referrals, we were able to disaggregate that data by race, by sex, uh, by class, by grade. We looked at things such as where were the referrals happening, what time of day, which teachers, what infractions? And by being able to disaggregate that data and really identify and track those trends, we were able to look at the practices of our teachers, of our uh, support personnel, and then of our leadership. And then once we saw these policies, we we're like, these are some ridiculous policies that are looking really close to zero tolerance, right? And then once we looked at the cause of these policies and how they were showing up, we were able to disrupt it and change those policies and those practices. And same thing with SEL. Who are the kids who are showing up as the, the quote unquote conduct problems or kids uh, who are in need of this? And are they getting the supports and services that they need? And how are you monitoring that data to see growth? 
What uh, surveys are you using? What metrics are you using? And how are you saying that these students aren't getting what they need? And how can you find ways to actively meet the needs of those students? And so to, to simplify that, finding existing systems that are already in place and finding ways that you can build on top of that. Um, another example, I mean, it's kind of shifting away from the SEL piece, but still relevant, I think, um, has been, at least in my district, um, they're shifting from RTI to MTSS, right? And one of the things that I've I worked with teams on is how can you look at what you've already been doing under this RTI and different teams inside of your school? And how can you shift and build on top of that to meet the needs of all students across all tier levels of supports based on the intensity and needs of those students. And so just tweaking it to make sure that you're taking what you're doing and shifting it to still get those intended outcomes for students. That's so practical. You know, I think we fall into into our practices sometimes and into these systems, right? And we just sort of go with the flow. And, um, you know, we have this mantra and I don't know where we got it from, but it's, it's what gets measured gets managed. And, you know, we've repeated it a lot on the podcast and maybe got it from one of our guests and um, just looking at that data and, and looking at, you know, what needs to change in the system because we're looking for the positive outcomes. I mean, it's so practical, but it's easy, I think, to get stuck, um, you know, in our day-to-day -day practices and not think beyond that. So this is such a good reminder. And and just, I could listen to you talk all day about this stuff because I think you make it so practical and make it sound so tangible, you know, um, and I think that's what we need. Uh, we need to be able to to do this, you know, not get, get stuck as we do um, and then wonder why the systems are staying the same or why we're not having good outcomes. Absolutely. I know that we had some viewer questions and I'm wondering if we should circle back to those before we hear a little bit more about the work you've done, been doing, especially in, you know since COVID. I, I know I follow you on Twitter and I see videos and, and all sorts of cool things coming from you. Um, but I know we had a question, let's see, here it is. Uh, did you come across any implications for LGBTQ youth in the context of social emotional learning? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Um, so the, the one component that I saw, one, again, Similar to my chosen demographic, there isn't a ton of research that's readily available. Um, and that's a limitation, uh, but also an area of future implications that need more research. So if you're interested in doing research, let's team up and let's make sure that we're getting the research uh, for our LGBTQ students. The second thing that I did happen to come across is especially with our LGBTQ students, our trans students, as well as our students um, who are in the foster care system as well. Um, and we see that students who are in the foster care system oftentimes um, might be trans or LGBTQ and that their needs aren't actively being met um, inside of the school. And of course, when you break it down um, and connect those students with specific outcomes, there just isn't a ton of research and data that's readily available. And I think that is an area to where we need much more research. Um, I think what that means is, again, implication, we need more research in that area. But then that also means that we must be very uh, thoughtful and considerate into how our LGBTQ students are represented in the literature, um, how our LGBTQ students are represented in these conversations when we're discussing SEL. Um, I think it's important when we're talking about systems of power, we have to understand that in that context, 
Um, it's mostly uh, cis white men who are creating these SEL curriculums. Um, and then the people who are delivering uh, those curriculums are mostly white females. And the student, the people who are receiving uh, those curriculums are black and Hispanic youth and those uh, students from disadvantaged communities. So what does that mean? The people who are creating these curriculums don't look like the students who are receiving those curriculums, whether it's black, Hispanic, LGBTQ, or what? So my whole premise, and especially with the redesign work that I'm doing, is this idea of designing with and together instead of designing and picking things out that are going to fail 99% of the time. And what I see in this space is that people are just picking out SEL curriculum because they think it sounds good. Uh, they're just picking out SEL curriculums and it's a cultural misfit. And so I always preach that whenever you're selecting an SEL curriculum or practices or procedures, that it must be culturally relevant and it must fit to your chosen demographic. I think those things are, are super important. Um, but uh, Vanessa, let, let's definitely link up and we can definitely explore doing some more research in that area. Awesome, awesome. And then um, we had another question too. Um, why do you think there's still a lack of people of color, specifically African-American males in, in school psychology, as school psychologists? Yeah. Hey, Nick, thank you for that question. Thanks for joining. I know we follow each other on social media. Yeah, man, I um, that's a that's a very important question. And one I know that several people in our field are actively trying to address. Um, I can speak for myself. Um, I think I am part of that statistic. And one of the things that we see is there's just a, a major lack of awareness um, of the field. Um, I found out about school psychology on accident. Um, I was in graduate school out in, I'm serious, in West Texas, and I was in the clinical psychology program. Like I, I wasn't supposed to be a school psychologist. I, I actually fell into it on accident. And I, I was taking a class and we had to figure out um, our chosen demographic, uh, the income that we would make, all the, you know, the, the basic demographic stuff. And I found out that the demographic that I wanted to work with um, at that point in time uh, didn't actively seek out counseling or they rarely sought it out. And so it would be harder for me to work with the demographic. And so I was, I literally walked outside of the class and I was like this, I was wrapping my brain, I was looking super stressed. And this lady, the program director came out, she was like, excuse me, sir, are you okay? I was like, you know, I'm just thinking, I was having, a, I guess, like a, a moment and I just started talking to this lady. I had no idea who she was. But long story short, come to find out she was the school psychology program director, Dr. Jennifer Shoemaker. And based on that conversation, she educated me on school psychology. And I'll never forget, she said, oh, well, it's kids everywhere. And it's schools everywhere. And the kids that you want to work with or the people who you want to work with are in schools. And you want to work with them when they're adults. Doesn't it make sense if you work with them when they're younger and be preventative instead of reactive? I was like, oh, yeah. So what do I do? And she's like, become a school psychologist. And me and one of my good colleagues at that time, uh, Bob, we switched from clinical psychology to school psychology. But it started with education and the awareness. And I think our field, we're doing a better job of it, but there must be that level of education 
and awareness. Before I went to ACU, I went to uh, HBCU. I went to Hampton University. And I can tell you, I've never heard of school psychology before. And why is that important? Because there are HBCUs all across the country, which are predominantly black schools. And it should be pushes to push into these historically black colleges and go where the people are and spread that education and awareness. What if there was a program that did that? What if there was some sort of exposure project or something that did that? Well, Dr. Charles Barrett and the African-American Culture Committee, they are doing just that, where they created the NASA Exposure Project, where they are educating, they are spreading awareness of the field to high school students, to graduates or to, to undergrad students so that they can have a knowledge and understanding of the field, then hopefully enter into the field. So Nick, excellent question. Um, and it, again, it's, it's gonna take a lot of work to, to continue getting the word out. Um, and I think, I can't, I can't be sure of this, but now we have a new president-elect who is a black woman, and I'm excited to see what, what that's gonna do for the field as well. Shout out to Dr. Celeste Malone. So, so cool. I love, I love that story and score for school psychology to kind of poach you over to our side here. <laughs> I like it. Very cool. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think Eric, you were unmuting before I go to another question. I want to let you <laughs> jump in. No, I, I, I was going to talk about the next question too, but I'll just give a, a shout out to Dr. Malone who we've had on and uh, we just so appreciate her and um, we're so excited to see the work that she'll do. And um, what a great point about the NASP Exposure Project and Dr. Barrett and um, so many wonderful scholars that we've had on. Um, uh, uh, you know, we're excited to share in the work they're doing and promote them as well. So um, glad that you, you brought that up. But um, yeah, Nick had another good question. Let's see. He's curious about the Black Lives Matter at School organization. And can you talk more about that? Yeah, absolutely. And before um, I answer that question, there was one more piece that I did want to add to that previous question um, about uh, increasing the amount of uh, African-Americans into the field. I also want to, um, to bring up this piece of mentoring. And I think that's a very um, underutilized tool. And like I said, um, with Dr. Scott Grace, who who supported me in my work, I would have never had the idea to even shift if I wouldn't have uh, reached out and had that connection with them. Um, I was going through my emails not too long ago, and I came across an email where I reached out to Dr. Proctor, who I see is on here as well, and just asking random questions. And she probably was like, who is this guy? But we built up a really good relationship. Like These are people who like I idolize coming into the field. Um, even uh, I just referenced uh, Charles uh, Nass Exposure Project. I remember meeting him for the first time a few years back when I first attended Nass. Like these are people who I've researched, who I've looked up to, um, who look like me. And so I think having that piece where we can mentor and pick the brains and we are building up uh, a coalition um, within this space. Um, I've seen several groups uh, where it's school site uh, sisters, I believe, um, Sassy for Social Justice. Um, there's another like a black uh, school psychologist group on Facebook. And so like we are building a sense of community amongst ourselves so that we can uplift each other, or we can share our trials and tribulations that we can only connect to and understand as fellow people going through this together. Um, so I, I think that mentoring component um, is super, super important as well. 
And then to, to Nick's current question, um, he said that he's very curious to know more about Black Lives Matter at school, um, the organization that I referenced on social media. Yes, yeah, so um, the Black Lives Matter at school, um, it's a branch that uh, focuses on bringing resources and curriculum into the schools to celebrate Black lives. Um, and it's for a week. Um, it recently just happened uh, February 1st through the 5th, and it happens every year. And they provide a ton of resources. Um, they provide provide a ton of content on social media, um, on their website. Um, I believe it's Black Lives Matter at school. Uh, you could just Google it. It'll come up. Um, and so I've been able, um, in partnership with one of my colleagues, Ania Nicholas, uh, we made sure that we did Black Lives Matter at school. And we did a number of different things where we brought in, um, of course, resources. There was education components. Uh, we had a Black Lives Matter pep rally uh, where students came and they did poetry. They did the spoken word. Uh, we had a go-go band to come in because we're DC. What's DC without go-go? Um, and we had a go-go band like teach students like our music. Um, these are all things that we did that's affirming who we are, our identity, our practices, um, and even making sure that we see ourselves represented in the literature, in math, in the ELA, in social studies and history, because so often all of these subjects are whitewashed and we're left out. And so Black Lives Matter at school is what to amplify our voices and say that you matter. And that's what Black Lives Matter at school is. That's fantastic. I uh, just uh, Googled the resource, so that's in our um, chat. Um, a couple other resources too, uh, just since you, you mentioned that, you know, my mom is a, a former English professor and um, she actually just emailed me today to say, you know, I'm trying to push in my community in Western Pennsylvania um, some um, more diverse curricula and just, just trying to work with the town and the school board. And she asked for some resources and um, the 1619 project and um, teaching tolerance uh, were a couple of the resources that I sent, but I'm going to send her um, Black Lives Matter at school. But um, those are really good resources um, for yeah, folks. And also to check out on my website, I list not just Black Lives Matter school, but I have a ton of resources linking SEL and racial equity um, on my website as well. And it's a number of different links, um, PDFs. Um, I developed some SEL and racial equity cards. So I have a ton of resources readily available on my website um, because this work is, is near and dear. And I want to make sure that people have the resources and tools so that they can actually take action inside of their school. Uh, Byron, what is your website uh, just for people, for our audience? Yes, my website is www.lessonsforscl.com and for F-O-R spelled out, yeah. And so one thing, I know I just gave that, that resource. Um, I actually ended up developing that resource as a result of actually wanting to make sure that there were uh, resources and curriculums that reflected uh, black and brown youth. Uh, that was culturally affirming, um, that was feasible for teachers to actually implement, and that actually worked toward, towards actively increasing and improving outcomes. And so um, after my dissertation, I actually uh, wanted to find ways um, that was feasible and affordable. Um, and so I, I ended up creating this curriculum, Six Minute SEL, which infuses concepts and themes around restorative practice, looking at a building community, 
repairing instances of harm, um, looking at restorative conversations and restorative circles through a prompt format and using that as a vehicle uh, to deliver that castle framework of those five core SEL skills, self-awareness, social awareness, all those different things um, in a way that's fun, that's engaging, that builds community. And the end result of that was 150, yes, 100, I'll just be working overtime, y'all, 150 SEL lessons that you can use to integrate inside of the any classroom during advisory periods for small groups, um, or you can use them simply as restorative prompts. Um, and that is also available on my website as well. Um, but I wanted to create something um, that met the needs of students that I've always wanted to work with, Black and Brown youth. It's a wonderful resource, I, I have to say. My district actually found it um, separate from me uh, and our um, school site connection. And uh, one of the folks who leads our, our SEL um, administrative uh, programming um, shared it with me. He said, I found this great resource, six minute lessons for SEL. You got to check this guy out. And I was like, he's a school psychologist. So, uh, so people are finding it outside of just the field of school psychology, you know, educators in general, and it's fantastic stuff. Yeah, it's, it's really been a blessing, you know, for the curriculum, for the most part, to be well received um, across the nation, internationally now. Um, yesterday, I just sent a, a, a shipment up to Canada. And so it's been really cool to see the lessons um, being well received um, because the intent is pure um, and it's simply to improve outcomes for, for youth and for, for our children. So I'm, I'm grateful. Um, I've only been doing this for a short while, um, but with everything in me, I'm going to continue pouring my all into this work. So question on the materials, are they, is this a tier one type of thing, like a class-wide thing? Is this small group? How are, how are the, how is it delivered? Yeah, excellent question. And so with the lessons, I wanted to design them so that they were flexible, that they could be easily differentiated across grades, across ages, and across tiers as well. And so I did a very short uh, feasibility study. And one of the things that I, I found out from that short feasibility study is that um, most people are utilizing them during an advisory period um, as a warm up um, during small group or a think pair share. Um, so that means that it fits across all tier levels of support. You can use them with all students during a warm up activity, or you can break it down for students uh, who need more intensive levels of support um, at tier two dive deeper, um, as well as at the tier three level of support as well. I feel like that's awesome and that's so important. I've been trying to, you know, as a school psychologist, you think about you want to make a difference in kids' lives and you also want to make kind of a difference in as many kids' lives as you can. And so I often look at tier one where school psychologists aren't necessarily really included in tier one discussions on what curriculums look like and how things are. Um, so I think it's so important to, I, I feel like that's bringing school psychs, have, having that resource, bringing school psychs into kind of a tier one discussion and then also having the flexibility to go more intensive when needed. So awesome. Absolutely. And I, I thought that was important as well, um, especially so that we, we can make this, this work accessible. And even, you know, in the midst of a pandemic, when the pandemic hit, it's so hard to believe almost a year ago, um, we were rocking and rolling with the lessons, the pandemic hit. Um, and so back in March, I made a shift uh, to make sure that SEL was still implemented despite everything that was going on. 
And that's where I created the, my, listen, I'm not like you all, y'all have it on lock. I tried dabbling in a YouTube channel. And so I created my own YouTube channel. It's, listen, y'all got it. I'm trying to learn from you all. Um, but I ended up creating this series of uh, YouTube videos, these SEO video lessons of the week. And I don't know how I did it, but I was cranking them out every single day from March up until June. And then I took a break and the people were like, when am I going to get my video? <laughs> um, and so I actually came back in August and have been releasing um, a video, uh, a lesson of the week um, from August all the way up until now. And I literally just released a week 27 uh, about an hour or so ago. And so, um, yeah, just making this SEO content readily available and accessible so that our students can improve and grow and reach those outcomes that we want. The videos are fantastic. And I wonder, I mean, you joked that it, it was a, a new exploration into the, but it's very, it's so well done. What was the most challenging part? Was it the, like the actual technology pieces or what was hard about it? You know, it was part of uh, the work that I do is, you know, these principles around design thinking. And one of the principles is design fast, fail fast so that you can learn. And I've made some really bad <laughs> mistakes <laughs> that I'm sure you all probably know. Um, in fact, I had um, Tim McIver, I think I said his name right. Um, he watched a couple of my first videos. He was like, dude, you need a mic. And like going back, I'm like, oh, why did I put that out? But the quality sounds terrible. <laughs> But people were so grateful and gracious, I guess, because they just wanted SEO content. Um, but yeah, I definitely had to learn, you know, whether it's the audio or creating visuals. Um, and even for myself, making sure that I consider myself to be, you know, pretty culturally uh, competent and have a, a high cultural awareness. Um, but still, people would say, hey, have you considered doing this or have you considered and um, making sure that your videos are inclusive. For example, using closed caption on your videos. And I had never thought of that before. Um, and so really it's more of a learning as I go with the videos. Um, to where now I think the videos are at a pretty decent place. I'm still learning, I'm still growing, um, but it's, it's been a pretty fun ride so far. Well, I've relied on those so <laughs> to send with my, especially when we were remote. I was just so appreciative of all the content you you developed and shared, and shared for free. You know, a lot of all those videos. Um, you know, I, I I think about um, you know, and, and your your work is not expensive either. That you know, your lessons and other things. Um, we need to support you and and the work you're doing. You put a lot of time into this, and and the fact that you're research based and you you've done so much. Um, you know, um, study into this whole process uh, rather than, you know, many of us who are, it's kind of like random acts of therapy or random acts of SEL, you know, on a regular basis. We need to be using a curricula that are appropriate and they're research-based and um, you've done this work. And so we appreciate it and um, really hope that, um, you know, people buy your stuff, you know, you, we, as educators, uh, give a lot away and, and we all don't make a, a ton of money doing this. So, um, I, I hope you, you sell a lot of material and, um, we just so appreciate all the work you put into it.
Thank you. Thank you so much. I certainly appreciate that. That that means a lot. As you were talking, I'm just sitting here like I'm really on this podcast with these legends. So that was just like a nerd moment that I just said, hey, this is cool. <laughs> we love having you on and we're so thankful. And I mean, I was the, the National Geographic thing. I saw that on my Twitter feed too, that you <laughs> wrote a piece for that. And like, I was like, that's so cool. So we're equally as um, ecstatic to, ha to have you with us. Um, I know there's we're going to be wrapping up soon. So kind of the last uh, call for questions. And I see that we have one here about with uh, all recent interest in culturally responsive work in schools. How do you see the role of school psychs facilitating this work and any advice you can offer when resistance exists? Yeah, I think this is an important question. And school psychs, we have such a knowledge set that most people don't have. We have such this uh, a wide range of skills and knowledge and resources. Um, we are we are the experts. We are school psychologists, and people are looking at us to have the answers. Right? How many times are we in IEP meetings and people look right at the school psychologist for the answer? Well, what do you think? That's because they respect our wisdom and our knowledge. And so, to answer this question, I think we have to look at it from a systems level approach. And to me, I could be wrong, but to me, in my perspective, school psychologists are ex experts or should be the experts in systems level change and how to influence uh, systems for all students, especially when we're looking at things such as PBIS or MTSS or implementation science or understanding social development, right? Because when we're talking SEL, we're talking social development. And so I think the role of school psychs in facilitating this work is having the understanding of how all of this works within a system that can be designed, that can then shift and create outcomes that we want to improve culture, to improve climate, to increase academic achievement, to increase pro-social behavior, to reduce all of those things I mentioned, the emotional distress and conduct problems, and to make sure that all students are thriving. And school psychs are positioned better than anybody. Principals, administrators, they have unique skill sets around leaderships and facilitating the building. Teachers have very specific skills, skill sets when it comes to things such as teaching, but school psychologists are experts in all of those things. And we need to utilize and tap into our resources. I think we are, and we kind of talked about this before I recall, I think that as school psychologists, we must be able to step outside of just the box that people are placing us in because that is doing a disservice to the students who are re relying on us to bring our gifts and our magic to this field, to bring about the systems level change, to bring in our gifts to say, I understand what's happening here. And if we just do this intervention, or we, if we can really get down and drill down and disaggregate the data, then we can really start making some changes, some difference, and actually see some significant growth there. Who better than school psychologists? And so I think when you ask that question, how can school psychs be the ones to facilitate this work? Who better? And I'll leave you with that. So, oh, and then for, for the other piece where resistance comes up, listen, if, if, you, if you're not getting resistant in the work that you're doing, that means you're not doing anything at all. You're not, you're not, I mean, just being honest, you you must not be, you know, causing enough of a change to, to get people rattled. 
And that must mean people are comfortable with you being in, in your little space. No, you can't do that. As a school psychologist, you must get out of that little space, step outside of your office if you're in person, right? And say, this is what I'm able to do. This is what I'm capable of. Yes, you may not like it. Yes, it might not be comfortable. But as Charles Baird always says, it's always about the children. And we have to be willing to take a risk. Got to be willing to take a risk and step out there and do and advocate on what's in the best interest of our children because they deserve it. That was awesome. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you know, we're all just sitting here um, like, you know, grinning as you're talking and, and feeling inspired and um, it, it, posting in the chat box like, uh, you know, we want to be like you when we grow up. So, um, yeah, great. We're taking it in. Yeah. I love, I love what you said about if you're not getting resistance, then you're not doing anything because I think I really just needed to hear that because it can be so hard, but you're right. The work is so important. So thank you so much for that inspiration. No, thank you all. I know we're, we're coming to an end. Thank you all for, for having me and sharing your platform with me. Um, I'm, again, just grateful to be here and grateful for the opportunity uh, to speak with you all um, and to engage in this work. I don't get it right all the time. I'm learning. I'm still relatively you know, new in this field. Um, I'm just advocating for, for youth who look like me, and I'm going to keep doing that. Awesome. Thank you so much. And, you know, open invitation. I feel like, you know, there's so much more we could keep talking about um, and you have so much to bring. Um, so open invitation. Anytime you want to come back, just let us know. We'll get you back on. <laughs> all right. That sounds good. Thank you all once again. All right. Good night, everybody. Have a good night. Thank you so much. Good night, everyone.